Welcome to episode 156 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And I am Dr. Laurel Bannock. And today we've been having another awesome conversation. We've been on fire lately with these podcasts. Uh, I've got so many more to bring to you, which is hopefully good news and exciting to many of you. And today was another one of these double act conversations featuring our very own Professor Kevin Tipton, who you will now be very familiar with. And our guest expert today was Dr. Chris McGlory. And you're going to learn all about Chris and Kevin if, you, if you're new to this podcast. So welcome if you are. I can promise you this one, we're going to really sink our teeth deep into this topic that could on the face of it appear to be a pretty open and shut case as it relates to omega-3 fatty acids, these omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids that you all, of course, I say of course, I assume most of you know a fair bit about these substances, these magic substances, these magic bullets that are widely touted as being really important for your health, disease prevention, cardiovascular health. And there is now some emerging evidence that these substances may also have an influential role in what we're trying to do in performance nutrition, in sport and exercise nutrition, and in particular, have a role to play in how muscle protein synthesis operates and, of course, adaptations to training and performance and so on. So we really get into the roles that omega-3 fatty acids have in things like in how they play an important structural role, but also a signaling role in the heart, muscle, and nervous system. We will get into what actually omega-3 fatty acids actually are, just to clarify a bit of the basic uh, science for those of you that are interested in, in that. We talk about where it comes from. We talk about the difference between it being an essential requirement as opposed to being uh, superfluous to need. And by that, I mean, do we really need to jack in a bunch of supplements or is there an argument for doing that? We get into to that, of course. And we're going to have really, is, is, I say we're going to have, we've already had this conversation. So we've had this discussion around how omega-3s may play a role in improving the markers of muscle recovery, of course. There's not a lot of evidence potentially for omega-3s having an impact directly on performance, but there is some evidence that there might be some other benefits. But we're going to get into whether or not there's an argument for supplementation or food first, of course. I'll leave you to listen to the podcast to get into that in more detail. And yes, we will get into some of the more nuanced areas such as how it may impact muscle loss during immobilization and recovery from injury, for example, which is uh, an interest for performance nutritionists working in team sports a lot, I find, and a whole bunch of other things that I, I think you'll find so much controversial as compared to much of the information you'll, you'll get out you know, on the internet, social media. And indeed, in some studies, we are going to challenge, I say we, they are going to challenge some of the things you thought you knew about omega-3 fatty acids and my, my favorite word of, of many years, the, uh, you know, how important context is in this matter. My new favorite word, how relevant these things are in your toolbox as a sports nutritionist, a, a sports scientist, a, a, just a consumer of these things, or indeed a researcher. So 
Before we get into this conversation, please do go check out our website at www.theiopn.com. That's where you can get the link to the podcast website where we do have transcripts and links to all of the uh, the papers and other resources that we will be referring to in this podcast you're about to listen. And whilst you're there, you must go check out our Diploma in Performance Nutrition that me and Kevin are, are involved with, along with the rest of our awesome team at the IOPN and all the amazing 40, 50 plus world-class experts that we bring in to help teach you not just the science behind sport and exercise nutrition, but how to practice and apply this into real-world scenarios to help develop you into a highly effective practitioner. That's what it's all about, getting results, not just getting amazing certificates on your wall or whatever. It's about getting results. So this is the perfect complement to your existing qualifications. I know myself there is no end to the amount of continuing professional development that you can and should do to keep working on your goals to be the best that you could be. Well, this is something you should look at because it's going to be a real contender for helping you achieve those goals. And whilst you're there, check out SEMPRO, which is our practice management and nutrition coaching platform that I genuinely believe is a game changer as it, as it results to relates to enabling you to work as well as you can with your clients, particularly nowadays where there's a lot of online coaching, a lot of remote work. And I am using this myself with my private clients and the teams that that I'm working with. So that should give you an idea of how how important I think that is. It's not just some commercial recommendation. So anyway, that's enough of me plugging what we do at the IOPN. Join me and Kev and Chris McGlory in what I felt was an awesome conversation. I hope you think so too. Take care. Hi, and welcome to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And today I have another double act for you today. My first guest is a new guest, Dr. Chris McGlory and our very own Professor Kevin Tipton. Chris, before I, I get into uh, the nitty gritty of why I wanted to have this, or Kevin, I wanted to have this conversation with you today, which is I'm going to help tease the audience somewhat with the fact that we are going to get into omega-3 fatty acids, but tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you, you got to this point of being so interested in omega-3s. Well, thanks for having me on, firstly, yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to explain that. As you can tell, I'm, I'm English. I, I grew up in just outside of Liverpool, but I, I currently work in Canada at the moment as an assistant professor. And I really got into this because I, I played a little bit of rugby and I was interested in sports nutrition. I did a sport and exercise science undergraduate degree at Liverpool John Moores University with James Morton and Graham Close as my, as my supervisors for my master's. But uh, essentially it started because uh, James Morton gave a, a really, really comprehensive and quite an exciting protein metabolism lecture when I was an undergrad and it, it piqued my interest in protein turnover. And uh, I, I ended up chasing James to supervised my undergraduate degree and uh, we went down a different route in terms my undergraduate thesis sorry went down a different route in terms of carbohydrate metabolism really what it came down to at the end was talking to james about where i wanted to go and what i wanted to do and he just said to me if you're really interested in protein turnover and protein metabolism you need to learn how to use traces or apply the tracer technique and and that's when i started sending emails out to Stu phillips and to john holy and kevin and luke van loon and kevin had a position he was moving from birmingham to sterling so I applied for the position with, Kerlin, uh, with with Kevin and Sterling where I could learn the tracer technique and that's where it really started. And I went up to work with Kevin and did some work up there with him. Brilliant. Kev, perfect, perfect cue for you there. 
few listeners don't know, I'm now the director of science and research for the IOPN, and I'm what a little over a month in now, and, That's and right. enjoying it. And it's, it's a, a nice challenge to come in and create a new position. So I know we've been having fun trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So as Chris said, I was at Sterling as a professor, and Chris was my first PhD student at Sterling. There and see, he survived the the stress and trauma of that. Before that, I was at Birmingham, and after Sterling, I was for a little over a year was at Durham University, and then decided academia wasn't for me anymore. And so now you're stuck with me. That's right. This area, though, and we'll delve a lot more into this topic in a second. But this is very much an area that you have an interest in and have had an interest in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Chris, when Chris got to Sterling, we were just starting to do some studies with fish oil and omega-3 fatty acids. And that was at least partially because the Institute of Aquaculture there is really prominent. And so they had a lot of people very interested in, you know, salmon and, and making good salmon. So we were collaborating with them. And so Chris Chris did two studies in Sterling on on fish oil, which I'm sure we'll we'll touch on and then sent him over to to the big guns and he he went and learned from Stu Phillips. Fantastic. Yeah, when I first came to Stalin, it was I was kind of interested in, like I said, the protein metabolism side and the traces, but Kevin had worked with Stu Galloway and they brought in some money with the Amiga Amiga 3 stuff, working with the Institute of Agriculture. And I'd done a bit of carbohydrate work with James. And then, you know, I started to I was interested in the protein side of things, but then I never really heard of anything about Omega 3s and and how that would interact with muscle protein. And I, it's just something that never really crossed my mind. And then when I started to read the grant that they'd written and, and start to think about it, it really started to pique my interest quite a bit in terms of how these fatty acids are going to interact with, with, with protein metabolism. So that's really, yeah, where, where I kind of landed at Sterling and we did those two studies, which which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. And he was like a, he was like a kid in a candy shop once he got into it. I mean, he would come, he'd come into my office and next thing you know, my whiteboard would have arrows and, <laughs> things everywhere words i had never heard of so he had he had to teach me a lot about it but that's the great thing about this and that's why i love to hear the background behind the guests and how they they came into this because as we were just saying off air you know it, it, it to contextualize stuff is very important and of course my listeners going back for years will know i've been obsessed with context but it's also the context of of the study, the research, the information, this this evolution of this body of knowledge to understand where it came from, it, you know, is really interesting. And we'll get into this as well, because particularly on this topic with omega-3s, which is a huge area in the general health, sort of medical health prevention areas, public health and so on, for very good reasons that we'll, that we'll delve into. But, you know, once again, this is something that's creeping into the sport and exercise nutrition field and it you know as, as we were discussing in a previous podcast sometimes these things can be very much a sort of a is it a supplement or is it a is something an ergogenic aid is it something that one really needs to take if we're going to consider a food first approach and then of course there's the realization that everyone's different not just in terms of their own personal needs or what they're trying to achieve through their their training as an athlete, as uh, you know, as it relate uh, as compared to say a sedentary adult or an obese sedentary adult or someone with a metabolic disease, there's all sorts of things that one has to consider. And then the information behind the research, the knowledge that that led to that 
thing being a strategy that's going to be used is is worth unpacking to truly understand my favorite word, which is the relevance of it as it applies to our decision making we make as a practitioner or as a researcher looking to impact this field further. You know, what we can, but sh- but should we? You know, you can, but should you is very much my my mantra. So to really understand the history behind these things and the relevance that it has, not just to human health and metabolism, but specifically to to athletes' performance, you know, adaptations to training, illness, injury, these are all things that we've become obsessed with in sport and exercise nutrition, where, you know, we only have to dial back a decade or so. And it was really just about macros, you know, protein, carbohydrates, uh, calories, carving up, you know, whereas performance nutrition now is is really getting quite sexy, in my opinion, as a, as a practitioner and as a geek. And a lot of this stuff presents the practitioner or the researchers looking to impact practice with a lot of different things. To dial that back to what we're going to talk about today, there is a, a number of podcasts that we've been doing recently, some of which is, has been with Kev, which has been about the concept of muscle protein synthesis, hypertrophy, and so on, which of course is a an obsession within the sports nutrition field, strength conditioning, and so on. We're constantly obsessed with this idea of getting bigger, faster, stronger. But of course, you know, an athlete is also a human being and has needs beyond just being bigger, faster, stronger. So that's why we become so interested in these other things that we can put into our toolbox and help our athletes become bigger, faster, stronger, and healthier, of course, amongst other things. So what we're going to talk about today is really quite a popular topic now in our field, which is omega-3 fatty acids. And particularly our focus today will be about skeletal muscle protein turnover in health disuse and disease, which Chris, you authored a, a review paper on this in 2019, which I know you've now been updating and uh, you've got quite a lot of work in this area, which of course is why you had to come on to this podcast and have this conversation with with me and Kev. But what I want to do is just help the audience get a few definitions, a, a few background bits of information so that they can benefit from the rest of this this conversation. So if we start with you by just giving us a general overview, I know you've delved into this just in the intro there, Chris, but why has this topic for you developed into where it is now with your research and publications and so on? Why, why have you become, for want of a basic term, why have you got this healthy obsession on this topic? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think for myself is, is finding a niche that I'm interested in as well, like from a research perspective. But I think the thing for me is, is, is realizing that when we consume these types of fatty acids, uh, you know, particularly the N3 fatty acids, which make up our, our membranes and our phospholipids, they they affect all the tissue, like many, many different tissues. So it's not just skeletal muscle, they have whole body effects. And for me, it's kind of just intriguing how simply ingesting these types of fats and how they they can alter the, the lipid composition of our, of our membranes can really affect intracellular processes. So I sometimes like to think, you know, the cell membrane is like the gatekeeper of what goes in and out of the cell and simply just modulating the phospholipid profile or the fatty acid profile of, of that membrane can really influence what's going on and what's allowed to go in and out of the cell and also some of the signal networks inside of the muscle and you know that's really why i'm interested in it and, and really the thing the first paper that kind of made me think a lot about it was from patina mittendorf and golden smith's group they infused amino acids following 
N3 fatty acid supplementation and found that it potentiated creating synthetic grades to amino acid infusions. And I really just started to try to piece together what I'd learned about the mechanisms of muscle growth in, in the cells and, and in animals and also in humans and, and what might be mediating that response. And that's kind of really where I started to get my interest is from Bettina Mittendorfer's work. And then it kind of just spiraled from there really. And when I got to Sterling, what we wanted to do is, is to, to establish a time course change in those lipid profiles. So, well, if it is caught, if these lipid or the omega-3s and the changes in the lipid profiles of what mediate and response, well, how long does it take before we see those changes in skeletal muscle? And we actually found up to five grams per day in young men, at least it took around two weeks before we saw that detectable change. And it's kind of like really where we've gone from at least that first paper. And then it's gone on from there with the exercise studies. And, and for me, a little bit of the immobilization work, which I think we'll talk about at some point. So Chris, just, you know, this is an area that is fascinating for a number of reasons, partly because I had already pointed out that there, this isn't a new area in the wider body of health-related research. There's been an obsession with omega-3s for a long, long time. Given that a lot of research to this day, and Kev, I don't know if you're, you guys can jump between each other on these as you wish, but but you know, there's been for a long time, as it relates to that obsession I referred to before about getting bigger, faster, stronger, you know, anything that relates to muscle protein synthesis, muscle pro- protein hypertrophy, the things that you hear is things like the modality of exercise, time under tension, these sorts of things from one perspective, the mechanisms that will influence those processes from an exercise perspective. But when it comes to, to nutrition, we pretty much only really hear a few things like protein. That's pretty much the only conversation that you tend to hear, particularly outside the areas of expertise on this topic, where, of course, you guys are going to help elaborate on this. That really is the only thing. You might, you might hear a faint mention of energy balance. You might hear a faint mention of the importance of carbohydrates or, or, or something. Why has this suddenly jumped on the scene? Because that in itself is rather interesting. The first real study on fat and protein synthesis was done, I want to say, back in the early 90s, and it was an infusion study. They infused triglycerides and then tried to see if that, and, and it did nothing, of course, on its own. So that was sort of, and for years and years, people just sort of gave up on it, on fat, worrying about fat and protein synthesis. So, and then, as Chris said, you know, Gordon Smith and Bettina did those studies where they infused amino acids and insulin to try to mimic a feeding. And it was eight weeks, right, Chris? Eight. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Eight Eight weeks of supplementation. And the interesting thing was that the basal rate of muscle protein census didn't change from pre to post those eight weeks. So the resting, not fed rate of protein census didn't change. But when they did the simulated feeding, then it was enhanced. So, so, the fatty acids don't seem to do anything per se to the protein synthesis. They enhance the muscle's ability to utilize the amino acids. Yep. And I think, Kevin, when we, we, we talked about, it was in the Grant Europe as well, is about the work from, I think it was McGill, looking at the infusion into the growing steers and how it affected whole body, basically phenylalanine disposal. And it, it, it gave an idea that there was having a positive impact on, on protein turnover, but it wasn't muscle-specific data. So that's, I think, where Bettina Mittendorfer's group and Gordon Smith then took it forward into the humans with the biopsy study. And then they did those two studies in, with the infusions like you've described. And then one thing that I think 
was really surprising to me was that when they did another study to build on that with the six-month feeding study where in the absence of exercise they fed and to be fatty acids and found really kind of very positive effects on skeletal muscle in terms of size and strength so it looked at least that the initial studies where there was potentiation of protein synthesis to amino acid provision was somehow translating into longitudinal changes in older adults in old adults yeah yeah now i find this interesting for a lot of reasons and you guys are the, are the scientists here and i'm sort of looking at this more from a practice perspective a foodie perspective but also I remember being struck by actually it was on our program the well in in our former named program we had a lecture from Dr Kevin Curl of the English Institute of Sport and he was talking about unleashing the power of food and that was for myself actually sort of where I really started to grasp the concept of a food first approach which we now hear spoken and then. As I fast forward that to only last year, the tail end of, of, of last year, I attended a conference at University of, of Roehampton where I was also speaking on something. And Dr. Nicholas Bird gave us this fantastic presentation about the protein matrix and why you know, we need to be careful about our obsession about looking at just protein or just whey or just casein and even not just the protein fractions, but also some of the other stuff that is in food that, frankly, we haven't even yet identified, which may be limited by the fact that we we still have fairly basic methods of analysis and assessment, despite how high-tech our labs look like. You know, if you go 20 years down the road from now, they'll probably identify all sorts of crazy stuff that might help to explain things that we have yet to to identify. And of course, that makes me makes me think back to just how much we take from the evidence that exists on a topic where, of course, the quality of that evidence varies considerably, but also where that evidence came from, i.e., there's a lot of information about omega-3s out there, you know, from good research, from people that have just made stuff up or whatever. But but even from the quality research, you know, it's taken from the more public health sedentary populations, but it's still applied in sport and exercise nutrition because up until recently, there wasn't any information that was specific there. But we'll come back to that. But this idea that omega-3 fatty acids is a component of food. Yeah, Kev, come on, let's take us forward. Just to kind of follow that up with Nick Bird's work, that work suggests that perhaps omega-3 fatty acids aren't magic fatty acids, that other fatty acids might also be effective. So, you know, we did a study in Galveston published in 2006, where we found that after exercise, when we compared whole milk ingestion to skim or fat-free milk ingestion, that we actually had a better utilization of the amino acids with the whole milk. We thought maybe the energy was an issue. So then we equated the energy and gave them more skim milk to get more energy. So then the different, there's more protein, but we still had the same response in the whole milk. So the whole milk actually for the the amount of protein that was ingested, they got a better anabolic response. So then Nick did his study with the eggs where he compared whole eggs to egg whites. So again, the protein was almost identical in the two. And then the, the response of protein synthesis after exercise was greater. So you ask yourself, what's the difference between in both those studies? Well, one of the biggest differences is there's more fat. Now, there are other 
components as well, especially in the egg study, because the egg yolks have quite a lot of very nutrient rich. But it also it does suggest that it's perhaps it, it might be interesting to do some of these type studies with other other fats like dairy fat or fats found in eggs to see if that's if, if it's something to do with that, that it seems like again that fat is enhancing the muscle's ability to utilize the available amino acids. It, it, would you say that's a, accurate, Chris? Yeah, I would. And I think the food first approach is something that I think most of us would really advocate for. But when we look at these things in isolation, what we're really trying to do is to find out what are the active ingredients um, and, and how they may independently be working. But that could also certainly change when then we co-ingest them with other things. So I think Nick's work is a great example of that, where you have the egg white and then you combine it with the yolk. And, you know, they're greater than the sum of their parts in, in, in some cases. And we're obviously designed to intact to ingest intact food sources that have a variety of different nutrients. So it can be sometimes quite complex when we study these things in isolation and then we think we know what we're on about. And then all of a sudden, when you, you, you look at it from, say, like a food first point of view, it changes things, which I think is kind of good in some way, in many ways, because that's how we would like to recommend people to, con- to consume foods. I'm, I'm not really a supplement person, so to speak. I would always say, like, let's try to go from a food first point of view. But you know, from a scientific perspective, it really is interesting to see how co-ingestion of a lot of these different nutrients, particularly from my perspective, different types of fats, can alter the, the anabolic response and skeletal muscle, but also other aspects of, of skeletal muscle health itself. And that, for me, is what's interesting, which is a reason for these podcasts, for example, is to help people get their head around what's being done in the lab, what's being stated in the paper, and how we should actually interpret that. Because, of course, you we talk about this a lot, but from the science perspective, you you, you have to have a you have to reduce this stuff down so you can make sense of it all. So, of course, you know you used whey in the study, so of course whey gets talked about in the study in the conclusions, but that doesn't mean that it has to be whey. Kev's talked about this a lot and Kevin Stew in previous podcasts, but it, it is that translational issue for me that things very much get lost. And I like that phrase you used, the greater than the sum of its parts, which of course is the argument for a food first approach. But let's, I, let's go back to... Uh, I just say one more thing sorry, on that? Kev, go on. Well, just to follow that up, at Chris, after you left Sterling, Ollie and I tried to get some funding to do something similar with salmon. So we were going to, you know, we're again with the aquaculture people trying to collaborate with them. And we were going to try to see if we could compare salmon to, say, cod, where the proteins are pretty similar. But, you know, you'd have the omega-3 fatty acids inherent in that food. Now, subsequently, they balked at the cost. But subsequently, is that Swedish paper, wasn't it, Chris, that where they fed older adults for six months, they fed them a high fish and seafood diet, which came with a lot of omega-3 fatty acids. It was what, 500 grams a day, I think, of per week, <laughs> per week of fatty fish. And they changed the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio to less than two. And they actually had an enhanced response to resistance training in that study. So that sort of suggests that there might be something there. I agree, Kevin. And the other thing about fish as well is that, you know, it's a good source of protein. So particularly like, you know, essential amino acids. And one thing I try to think about as well, though, is that, you know, accessibility to these types of things and particularly for people from, you know, different, different economic, you know, there's obviously levels of an economic strata and what I mean, people's incomes and things and fish isn't cheap. So it's kind of one of those things, at least from a scientific perspective, studying these these things in like a, a food matrix and and how that will influence uh, skeletal muscle growth. But then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, 
some people don't like fish. Um, you know, I mean, I know that people may not want to consume that. So we have to think of other ways in which to change the profiles. Yeah, Kevin's right. I think there was a paper, I think it was Stromberg, and they yeah. looked at 500 grams and found I think it was type 2 fibers. I think that's kind of the approach that we would go for. Yeah, no, that's great. And I'm, gl- I'm glad you mentioned that because as a practitioner, something I have to be particularly aware of is the fact that, you know, everybody has their unique needs and preferences. And it might be quite simply, they don't like the taste of smoked fish or they don't like the taste of fish with the skin on or there's no way they're going to steam their fish they're going to fry the crap out of it and of course that may impact the quality of for example in this case the the omega-3s you know we yes protein is less impacted by methods of cooking but i think it's fair to say that this is a substance which might be affected by some of these things which I guess now that I've mentioned it, we and there's a, there's a danger of us forgetting about it. Chris, is is the quality of the omega threes important, and has that been factored into the actual research on this topic? In quality in terms of the, the sources, yeah, sources like where did it come from, and had they been impacted? You know, have they been affected by light, air, heat, all the things that might impact the you know the quality of the omega threes? Yeah, there's, there is some interesting things out there in terms of, you know, there's, firstly, there's a lot of variety in supplements. So when we talk about omega-3s or firstly, if we talk about fish oil supplements, there's lots of things that would constitute fish oil. Omega-3s are one of them. And then when we look at supplements, there's, there's again, a wide variety of the, of the active ingredients, what we think are the active ingredients, EPA and DHA. Sometimes they can be delivered in a, you know, a phospholipid form or in a triglyceride. You know, Stu Gray's got some really interesting data going to be coming out soon related to krill oil that I think comes in a phospholipid form. I could be wrong there. And that may seem to have a more preferential effect in terms of incorporation into the phospholipids. It's not really my area, if I'm going to be honest. I wouldn't say I'm an expert in that, but I do know that there's a large variety in terms of, or there's a big range in terms of the amount of omega-3s in a lot of the supplements that are out there. And then also in terms of the the way that they're manufactured from in terms of like, you know, a phospholipid or a triglyceride. The only reason why I'm mentioning this again is there's a sort of an assumption that we're talking about omega-3s. Omega-3s come from certain foods, which I'm going to have you describe in a minute. So they'll get something from, this one's for Lewis James, by the way. So they'll, they'll have their fish and chips. <laughs> they're going to have their fish and chips and then they're going to automatically assume that they're getting their appropriate sourced supply of omega-3s or they're going to go look i'm going to take a supplement so i'm just going to buy the cheapest thing i can find in the shop and you know again there's that simplification of that word omega-3 and what they see on a label is not necessarily what they should be taking as as i guess where i'm trying to go with that one thing related to that again back to co-ingestion we did a study just before i left sterling and the data aren't published yet we had the idea that maybe because omega-3 fatty acids are, are antioxidants, that they can be oxidized. And there was, in Chris's first study, there were some hints in there that, you know, we didn't actually plan to look for this. But Chris came to me one day and said, hey, you know what? It looks like the guys that are exercising more have less incorporation in the muscle. Is that Remember that, Chris? Off the top of my head, Kevin, no, to be honest, but it wouldn't surprise me. I think there may be different. I think there may be preferential incorporation of DHA or slightly differential incorporation based on the people who exercise more. Well, this is one of those times you came in with your ruined my whiteboard. And I remember this. And 
So we decided to try to follow that up. And so we, we tried to feed omega-3 fatty acids along with another antioxidant to try to see if we can lower the oxidation. The idea was if you're exercising a lot, you got more reactive oxygen species. And so then that's, that's interacting with the, the fish oil and you get less into the muscle. And as it happens, it didn't work. We didn't, didn't see any improvement in the incorporation with that. That paper's not published yet. It's mostly written and just needs to get finished off. So, so Chris, so I want to keep us on a on a path here because I I know especially with you two, we could just go off all sorts of tangents. So, <laughs> and I know we will to a certain extent, but I know this is already developing into a fascinating conversation because it's not actually an open or shut case about what these things are and what they do, which we'll reveal further, but. Just in case we're in danger of people not entirely sure what omega-3s are and how they function beyond a very basic level, particularly their relevance in a sport and exercise nutrition context, which will further contextualize later to different aspects of sport and exercise nutrition possibly. But what actually are omega-3 fatty acids and what do they actually do, Chris? So they're, they're basically a class of fatty acids that have multiple double carbon bonds in their structure. So that means that the, the, the bonds between the carbons, they have a double carbon bond. And what that does is that changes the, it creates little kinks in the chain. So the more double carbon bonds, it's become, the more unsaturated it is. And then you see those, those kinks in the chain. And some people think that that actual kind of alteration in the, the biochemical structure of those fatty acids has a profound effect on the production of other substrates or metabolites that are built from the fatty acid chain itself. So we commonly associate the N3 fatty acids. And the reason that it's called an N3 is because the first double carbon bond occurs on the, the third carbon from the end of the chain. That can produce, say, anti-inflammatory signal molecules. Whereas if you just change the position of that double carbon bond from the third carbon to the sixth carbon, so we have the, the omega-6 carbons, uh, sorry, the omega-6 fatty acids, they that may change, or we know it does change, the types of metabolites that are produced from that fatty acid. So this is where you have this trade-off between, you know, the omega-3 fatty acids being anti-inflammatory because they can be used to build anti build anti-inflammatory signal molecules, whereas the N6s are used to build um, another aspect, not just from a biochemical point of view, but also in terms of incorporation into the membrane. It's it's thought at least that the more those fatty acids that you have in the membrane with those double carbon bonds from an omega-3 perspective and, and the kinks in the chain it can affect uh, membrane order, which is basically what goes on at the membrane, how things are regulated in and out. And some of the signal molecules that are tied onto the membrane, they can be affected by changes in the lipid composition. So the more omega-3 type fatty acids you have in the membrane, that may be better for cellular health. And this isn't just, by the way, membranes of the muscle itself in terms of the sarcolemmal membrane, but we know that the mitochondrial membranes are also very sensitive to the provision of these different fatty acids, potentially more so than the muscle itself, and that's kind of an area that we're interested in at the moment, is how these omega threes can alter not just the membranes of the muscle, but also the mitochondria to affect its function. So there's a lot you read about, even in just basic anatomy, physiology. You start looking at tissue structure and function, and so on. And once you start delving into that, you do start to, to look at things like lipid membranes and so on. That feeds up to their role in inflammation, which you've already inferred, and we know that there's other aspects to this, like the immune system and so on, all of which I want to delve into. But Chris or Kev, you, you guys can choose who wants to answer this one, but what on earth has that got to do with the regulation of skeletal muscle mass, though? 
Well, this is something that's kind of really interesting is that, you know, if maybe some kind of a bit of an echo chamber that you live in when you're reading a lot of the papers with omega 3s and you all, and to me, the first thing that comes to mind of a lot of people is the cardiovascular side that is now starting to uh, get a little bit of pushback in the literature with some more findings and larger studies. And then the second thing is the anti inflammatory effects. And what a lot of people do with general inquisitive, and I, you know, still do this as a student, is you, you pick, okay, well, what do I know about omega 3s? Well, they, they have anti-inflammatory effects. And then I try to make, I try to build a hypothesis of how, how is it that, uh, you know, this anti-inflammatory effect could affect skeletal muscle. And then you design studies obviously to address those issues and think, well, you know, is aging associated with low-grade inflammation? Therefore, if we feed omega-3 fatty acids, we could reduce the inflammatory response and that may help protein turnover. But one of the really interesting things and I'm, I've noticed that, and um, a lot of other people have pointed this out as well is that in the studies in which there's a positive effect of omega-3s on skeletal muscle is it really doesn't alter a lot of inflammatory signal molecules. So the work by Gordon Smith and Bettina Mittendorfer, also from Stu Gray's lab, uh, some really excellent work there. Uh, they don't notice or don't detect anyway changes in the expression of anti-inflammatory signal molecules. So to me, it would suggest that a lot of the effects on skeletal muscle could well be independent of how they're influencing the expression of these signal molecules. So it's essentially, to cut long story short, I don't think we know how omega-3s are actually working. I think at this stage, there's not so much evidence to suggest that it's working via an anti-inflammatory mechanism. That's interesting. We just yeah, in the podcast now. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, um, more support for that. We can. It's kind of some indirect support from a study that Jordan Philpott did for his PhD at Sterling. And he found that omega-3 fatty acids reduced soreness, muscle soreness. And he also looked at the signaling, I mean, at the inflammatory markers, and there was no effect on that, but there was an effect on CK, on creatine kinase. So the interpretation that we came up with for that is that the soreness and the effects on the muscle, in that, and we didn't do biopsies, we didn't do protein synthesis in this study, that's not what this was for, but but the, the effects were local and not a systemic anti-inflammatory response based on putting together those data. And there was similar data from a, a rugby study where they found muscle soreness throughout a preseason training was was ameliorated with the omega-3 fatty acid fish oil. You know, you kind of take that whole body of results and put them together. And it strongly suggests what Chris said, which is it's probably a muscle, a local muscle effect more than it is a systemic anti-inflammatory response. Th then the other support for that would be that Gordon Smith and Bettina did find this in young as well as old, and the young didn't have that systemic low-grade inflammation that you know elder, elderly tend to have. So, put all that together, and it's 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 a pretty convincing argument that it's not the anti-inflammatory properties, that, which is sort of what we kind of thought at the beginning. Okay, and uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, the the overriding interest and obsession in this area, at least from the consumer's perspective, is specifically on muscle protein turnover. And of course, the, the bulk of that obsession is with is getting muscles bigger or stronger or, or whatever. In your review, Chris, I was reading about the omega-3 fatty acids and muscle protein turnover. And it's rather interesting to learn a bit more about that for the benefits of the listener. Maybe you could just take us a bit deeper into that topic of of what is the idea behind that and what is the reality that the evidence currently shows us as it relates to muscle protein synthesis, for example? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. I think 
Well, to start off with, the, the study by the Tina Mittendorfers group, that was an infusion of amino acids. So that, you know, is as excellent as the study it was. It doesn't really mimic real-world scenarios of feeding. Now, I believe that they clamped the uh, or infused the amino acids at a level that would mimic um, what you would typically see after a meal to try to kind of reflect what you would see in a, in a real-life setting. But at the end of the day, you know, it, uh, you know, Kevin pointed this out as well, is that, you know, square wave response of infusion for a prolonged period of time really is, it's not physiological. And then we followed it up with a resistance exercise study. Now, um, I think it was due to kind of financial limitations. We designed it in a way in which we didn't have pre-post measures. So we just had a, a, a between-groups design. But essentially, we fed younger people a 30-gram dose of protein. And we used a unilateral model that Kevin had worked with Ollie, with Ollie before and a few other groups. So we looked at the effect of 30 grams of protein feeding alone in the rested leg. And then after exercising young men, obviously the protein is going to hit both legs. So we looked at the, the feeding response and the exercise plus feeding response. And when you look at it, it looks like there may be some differences, but statistically it just wasn't there. When we were trying to interpret the data, I actually had a good long conversation with, with Ollie Wittard about this as well. And, and one thing he suggested and, and we were thinking is that maybe we've just kind of like blown the response out. We, we, supplement, we gave a maximal dose of protein of 30 grams and we just didn't really have the capacity to see any further increase. In that regard, maybe it's a concept of if we'd have used a lower dose of protein, the omega-3s would have sensitized muscle and as Kevin said at the start, could have better utilized the amino acids for the purposes of protein synthesis, but we just literally saturated the response with the 30 grams of protein. But then that begs the question, well, how useful is it really? You might as well just consume protein. You know, spending the money on the additional omega-3, if you're not deficient from an RDA perspective and you're looking to enhance performance in terms of muscle protein synthesis, really, you, you're just going to be okay consuming, you know, the 30 grams or the, the 0.3 grams per kg of protein. You, know, might, you might not need the essential, the, the additional omega-3 fatty acids. You know, that, that could be one interpretation anyway. Completely agree. I, I think that those data in a young, healthy we, maybe we need to limit it to males, but I doubt it'd be different between males and females. If we had trained females doing resistance exercise, I don't, I don't see any advantage in a young population. But there is evidence in older population. And then I think you hit it nicely. The difference between your study with the post-exercise and resting muscle and Gordon Smith's study, which is, like you say, it's a square waiver. That, the amino acid levels were kept steady for the entire period of measuring protein synthesis. And we know from several studies that protein synthesis will go up with that, but it won't stay up. It goes up and comes back down and you get actually a better response if you get a bit a different peak. So that's, you know, that's why, a, that's why Chris said it wasn't a physiological model because you don't get that peak of amino acids where it goes up and comes back down again, like he did, like he did in his study when he fed 30 grams. Now, wasn't your study... Wasn't that the one I, I thought about this a minute ago when you mentioned it, but wasn't that the one when, when we went to the ethics that the lady said, why are we using whey protein? We, we should be using broccoli. Yeah, I think that was the one where I don't think you could make it at that one, but we, we, I think it was a good job you weren't at that one, Kevin. I don't know if we'd have got funded because she was saying some things that you know, <laughs> I, think, I think Ollie and, and uh, Ollie and, and Stu were just batting them out. I was just sat there. I was a, a PhD student at the time. I didn't, I was, I was way out my depth and, and it was a good job. I had a, there, there was, you know, Stu Galloway and, and, and Ollie there, but like you're right, Kevin, some of the questions that, that we were getting, it was it was touch and go on whether they were going to give us the green light, I think. And one she of the comments. Food first. Like, broccoli. Sorry? 
She believed broccoli in food in. first. She but wanted you know, guys, broccoli. Guys, it, it has a study been done on broccoli and muscle proteins. <laughs> well, if you want to get, if you want to see how much broccoli you'd have to eat to get thirty grams of protein, then. <laughs> yeah. I would argue that the amount of digging involved constitutes sufficient exercise stimulus to build but some big muscles. She was, on, she was on about how broccoli has, per calorie, broccoli oh, has know. quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, that's hilarious. So, yeah, no, that's, it's certainly fascinating. And, of course, as I said, you know, the, the obsession is very much about muscle hypertrophy, muscle protein synthesis. Uh, I guess my where I find this work of particular interest is – Going back to that statement I made where we're not just looking at helping our athletes become bigger, faster, stronger, we, we also want to keep them healthy. We want to reduce the risk of injury. And in terms of an athlete who is injured, we want to return them to play, get them back on the pitch, get them back in the ring as fast as, as possible. Or if we want to take this outside the remit of sport and exercise nutrition, and you know we're, we're, we're talking – about supporting some form of rehabilitation from illness, for example, there does appear to be some really quite interesting stuff as it relates to attenuating the loss of muscle. What do we know about that? Because I do find this particularly interesting. Yes, yeah, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll try to, I'll start off by answering your, your first point. Is and from my perspective, I'm, I'm just to be clear, I don't think there's any evidence there to recommend above RDA values in terms of enhancing sports performance yet whether that be resistance exercise induced or even recovery or endurance exercise performance. And there's been some literature out there showing that athletes may be deficient. The problem with that is that the variability in a response to a single dose of N3s is really high. So when you're looking at the N3 composition of a membrane, uh, whether it be muscle or blood, to then kind of back refer or retrospectively refer or guess at what they may be consuming is kind of tough. I don't think it, it's it's very valid. So when we see a lot of the data out there where it's saying athletes may be deficient, I find, I find it kind of difficult to interpret because of the, the variability to a given dose. But the emerging area, and again, with respect to answering your question about the disuse, this was came about actually through two two angles. When um, I was in Sterling and Kevin had wrote the grant for the pretty synthesis stuff, I'd noticed in that paper, he talked about uh, some work from a Korean group looking at unloading if you highly suspend rodents, it will protect against muscle atrophy. And surprisingly, when they reloaded them, it inhibited the response, which was kind of strange. But essentially, like when they unloaded them, there was protection against atrophy. So that was in the back of my mind a lot after I'd finished my work in, in my PhD. And then when I went to work with Stu Phillips in uh, master, I just took over from a study from a master's student, Mark Van Orman, and he'd, he'd left to go to medical school. And then I worked with her actually a really talented PhD student, Tana Stokes. He's probably one of the best I've ever worked with, actually. And he kind of worked with me on the step on a step reduction study. And what was going through my mind is when we were we were looking at the step reduction study is we did some gene, some basically a microarray where we found that not only was there kind of like a decrement in, in protein synthesis and usual suspects, there was actually a decrement in the expression of mitochondrial related genes. Now at the same time as that was happening, I was aware of a lot of, of work going on from Guelph from Graham Holloway and Lawrence Spree about the impact of omega-3s on mitochondrial gene expression, or mitochondrial function, sorry, and and also some other work from what's happening on mitochondria and muscle turnover. And I kind of put these two things together and thought, well, there's some evidence in rodents that omega-3s can protect against tissue atrophy. Um, there's some evidence that this may be related to or linked to changes in mitochondrial function. And we know that omega-3s both affect mitochondrial function in a positive way, and they can also, in animals, protect against tissue atrophy. So we transitioned that into 
a study in young women. And, and we chose young women because there's some evidence, again, that active young women may be more susceptible to knee injuries and, and disuse atrophy. So, and there's also evidence that they, they actually may benefit better from omega-3 supplementation. So we did that study and teamed up with Graham Holloway at Guelph, who did the independent measures on mitochondrial function. And what we found was that a supplementation with N3 fatty acids protected against tissue atrophy and also protected against declines in, in ADP sensitivity and redoubts of mitochondrial respiration, which kind of uh, linked the two together for me and uh, kind of formed the basis of what I'm going to be pursuing right now. But another kind of side finding from that study was that we found a kind of, we used the same dose as what we did in Sterling with the five grams per day. And we found that there was a bit of, it looked like a saturation between or six and eight weeks of supplementation. So it kind of gives us an idea that the muscle may become saturated anywhere between six and eight weeks with the lipid profiles. And that's again something we're going to follow up on. But again, as a long answer to your question, um, we did find some interesting stuff. And, and one thing I was really proud of that study, it was a good team effort. And and we worked with Graham in, in Polo Mayato in Guelph. And we think we pinpointed somewhat of a mechanism. So going back to what you asked before about how omega-3s work, Something that I'm interested in, and, and I think maybe related related to this, is, is the effect on mitochondrial function. Yeah, I think you described that really well, not only here but also in your in your recent review paper. That that was very well done and very convincing argument. Let me just com- make one comment because I don't know if we've actually done this. We keep saying N3 and omega3, and maybe some listeners might not really know that those are the same thing. Those are two ways to describe the structure that Chris talked about earlier. So if we say N3, we're, we mean omega-3, they're the same thing. And I just want to make one comment about dose too, because a lot of them are roughly in that five grams per day range, right? A lot of these studies, but you know, as you probably recall, well, it just got published last summer, Sophie's study, when we gave 25 grams per day in six days, it was a marked increase in the in the muscle. Now that was the study. It was more about not protein metabolism, but you know, it had a big increase with twenty with twenty five grams. So clearly, there's an interaction with the dose and the saturation and that sort of thing. And we we don't know what that is because you know when push comes to shove, there really haven't been a huge amount of these studies. No, and I think that's a really important point, Kevin. When it comes to to dose, and one interesting area we're thinking about is a lot of these studies you have with many nutrition studies anyway, but like the fatty acids in particular, given the slow turnover rates and the time it takes to incorporate, you can't, it's difficult to do repeated measures designs. We don't know what a washout period is. We do have the data for blood, but in terms of skeletal muscle, we don't know. So say like we were to supplement some five grams per day, we know it's probably going to be saturated in the majority of people around eight weeks. But if they were to stop taking that supplement, how long would it be before they were back to baseline? And that's something that we're kind of interested in pursuing. And I think a few other groups maybe as well. And that would help in, with improving study design and statistical power. And then again, that if we can ramp it up with a dose in two weeks and achieve the same lipid profile in the muscle within two weeks and then pull them off. And then, you know, it would shorten the time frame and duration of the study, which, which would certainly help. But a lot of this is kind of underpinned by the hypothesis that it is the changes in the lipid membrane of skeletal muscle that is driving responses. And sometimes I take a, a backward step and think about, you know, could it be neuromuscular? Could it be interactions of the neuromuscular junction? Are we really looking in the wrong place? A lot of the work I've seen, like Stu Gray's got some really good data on, on the effect on, on strength and not necessarily mass. So, or is it both? Is it, is it, and this is where I got, like, going back to your very first question that excites me about omega 3s is that it's incorporated into neural tissues, it's incorporated into skeletal muscle, it's incorporated into mitochondria and organelles. So, it's having kind of, it, it, you know, it's, 
having a bit of a shotgun effect if, if for want of a better way of putting it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the neuromuscular and the strength because, you know, there are, I mean, that was one of the Rodaki study was one of the first ones where they, in older women, they gave omega-3 fatty acids and they didn't see any difference in muscle mass, but they saw an increase in strength and, and some other indications of neuromuscular function. And then in Jordan's study, we got some hints that the neuromuscular function might be might be something. And then if you go to sort of way back to pediatric studies on, on kids and omega-3 fatty acids important in nerves in the in the eyes and in sight, and also some hints that omega-3 fatty acids might be doing something with dementia and brain injuries. So there seems to be a, a neural component there. There's at least some good good evidence that that might be part of the, the story. So there appears to be quite a lot of exciting potential for these omega-3s, whether it's just for general health purposes or health prevention, that is, even to support certain health conditions, which we won't focus on in this out of our scope, really, uh, I think. But you, you talk about dose and stuff. Now, how much are we assuming about the quality and quantity of omega-3s in a person's diet when we use this phrase food first, but of course, you know, we, we know the reality is, is people eat a wickedly varied diet, some of which will be no common sources of omega-3s, or at least it'll be very scant. And I'm not specifically trying to justify supplementation at this point, but this point of we have an RDA, what, what does that actually mean, particularly in the context of an athlete? Adequate intake, of course. And then there's what constitutes as being optimal anyway. And there's a difference there. What do you think, Chris, on that? Well, I don't th- th- think we have the, in terms of the recommended amounts, generally it's around 250 mix, 250 to 500 mix of EPA plus DHA. I don't believe there's an RDA for EPA and DHA. I mean, it, it would differ based on different people. Something that, again, is something I find really, really interesting is that when you increase the dose of omega-3s, um, and I presume it's the same whether it's food or supplements, is that you get a very varied response. Women can metabolize or seem to be able to convert ALA, the precursor to EPA and DHA. They can convert it more effectively in men for reasons that we don't really know right now, or I don't believe we know right now. And again, even within people, so say if we were to have a separate group of men, a separate group of women, within group, they would, they would, there would certainly be a large response in terms of the change in the lipid profile to a single dose. Again, whether that's food or, or through supplementation. So this kind of makes it makes the area kind of difficult. And I'm I'm not aware of any studies that have really, you know, either correlated or studied the magnitude of the change in the lipid profiles with the magnitude of the change in, in the phenotypic outcome or even some of the molecular signals. So when it comes to an athlete, I think I, I will always at least at this stage, I'm just not seeing the firstly the evidence to recommend above the RDA or the recommended amount at this stage even if we did the, the response to be quite varied. And I think the other aspect is when we go through a food-first approach, I think it's to, two servings of oily fish per week in the UK is, I think, in the paper that we did. And I think there's a, oh, we've got one coming out soon, actually. And I know Ollie's written a paper and a few others have the same. Is when you look at the, the variation from fish sources in EPA and DHA, it's quite large. And you know, the salmon tends to have quite a large amount of EPA and DHA. Tuna doesn't. Tuna is quite low. So people go and saying, well, you know what? I'm consuming fish. I'm having large amounts of tin tuna. Well, it's not going to have as much as as much EPA or DHA as what you would expect compared to, say, salmon. So there's variation in the food sources as well, which is something you need to be aware of. I think. 
No, that's great. And for me, there's two there's two main areas in in practice that I come across. One of which is some of my my athletes will be vegan or vegetarian, which can certainly have an implication for food choices. And the other one, of course, is is the area that's really gaining a lot of interest now is, you know, the, the consequences of being in a chronic state of energy deficiency. So we've got these energy restrictive, you know, the impact of significant energy restriction, which of course is you might be eating some omega-3s, you're just generally speaking, under eating everything or or in certain certain areas. What what you know, what is what do we know about that as it relates to this topic, guys? I think Kevin, you've probably got more expertise here. So in, in general, to your question, sure. I mean, if somebody's energy restricting, they're almost certainly going to be eating less fish. And especially in, in the U.S. and the U.K., people on average don't really eat that much oily fish, as Chris said. Now, of course, that's going to be different if, say, in Scandinavia, for example, it'd be you know more people will be eating more fish. But so one of the themes that keeps coming up here, if, if the sharp-eyed, li- sharp-eyed, sharp-eared listeners might have noticed that when we keep the successful, as far as muscle goes, the successful intervention seems to be primarily in, not in situations like Chris said, where the anabolic response is already high and maximal, but in situations where the response, something's going on that's more in a catabolic situation, a muscle loss situation. If, if you remember, Chris talked about the, the Korean study where gave fish oil during immobilization and it ameliorated the loss of muscle. And then Chris found that same thing in the females. But in that Korean study, I can't really tell if it's two studies, it's two papers, but they rehabbed the muscle in these rats that the omega-3 fatty acids actually interfered with the regain of, of muscle. Now, so that's in the anabolic situation. And so with low energy restriction weight loss, of course, that's a catabolic situation for muscle. If you're not doing anything, you're going to lose muscle along with fat. And, you know, that's been shown several times. And, of course, we showed that you can give a high protein way back with Sam Mettler's study that you can protect that muscle. You don't lose the muscle. And so we tried that with fish oil. Jordan Philpot did a weight loss study. Again, we tried to repeat Sam's study mostly, but we we gave fish oil and it didn't. The omega-3 fatty acids did not protect the muscle in that situation. And these guys were training. So, yeah, I mean, the, oh, this is for me personally, this is exploding into some seriously interesting areas, which we're not going to have enough time to get into everything. But one area that strikes me is we're, we're using the term omega-3 fatty acids. But of course, as you alluded to earlier, Chris, there are, that's an umbrella term. So there are these EPAs, these DHAs, for example, how much does that actually matter? And and bearing in mind that, as I mentioned, you know, people do manipulate their diet through, for whatever reason, they have preferences or prejudices, or whether it's for some crazy reason or religion or, or taste or whatever, or they might be supplementing and they're like, right, I'm just going to whack in a bunch of EPA and not bother with the DHA or it says EPA and fish oils and they don't really know what these letters mean. They just saw the second bit that said you know, essential fatty acids, and they're just going to whack a load of that in. What, what, you know, how relevant is all of that? Well, I think, I mean, is your question alluding to really the difference between the fatty acids in terms of their mechanisms of action? Well, I mean, traditionally, we, we associate the DHA with, you know, your neuroexcitability and your muscular function and EPA with a direct effect on muscle. Um, again, it's degraded some work in cells where 
there appeared to be more of a you know a beneficial effect of EPA on, on synthesis than DHA. But again, that's in cells divorced from an intact circulatory system, you know, whether it's the same in humans, we don't know. And I think a lot of the time is there's two things I think about is like if there are differences, does it really matter? You know, because we're gonna if we're looking at a food first approach anyway, we're likely going to consume both of them together. I, I'm trying to think of as a scenario in which we would preferentially want to consume one versus another, but from a mechanistic point of view to understand which one's doing what, it is interesting. And there is actually a paper by, I think it was David Cameron Smith's group, really looking at DPA, which is another fatty acid and that's often forgotten in the, in the literature when it comes to EPA and DHA. So there's, there's a variety of fatty acids there. I think for me, is it a moot point? I don't know. The DPA versus DHA in athletes, I think really when you, I mean, one's metabolized to another at the end of the day. So... I think for me, it's, you know, you give both of them is where, where I would go forward with it. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I, I guess that'll lead into an area that I think will be of great interest to a lot of people because they associate omega-3s with things like having anti-inflammatory benefits, cardiovascular health, and so on. And of course, with, with athletes, inflammation and cardiovascular health are two areas of prime interest. I mean, I know... And perhaps naively, in my case, put my hands right up. You know, in the past, my my teams that I've worked with, my individual athletes, I've certainly been quite conscious about the need to to have them have a focus on their omega three intake. And is that actually uh, that was you know that's a long time ago, and of course, but but now is that something that's still truly valid? Do you think, since inflammation is an issue, and I know Kev, you've done you've written a review all about you know, performance nutrition strategies for, for injury, for example, is there, you know, how much of an attention should we have on omega-3s for, for inflammation in general? And is that a case, Chris, beyond the food first approach for supplementation, particularly in massive rugby players, for example, I'm thinking, or, or not? Is that just another example of where the, the science has been taken a bit too far for commercial purposes? Yeah, potentially. I think Kevin can expand on this. Uh, he's obviously wrote the paper. Is is the inflammatory response? Sometimes people things happen for a reason in physiology. In my mind, the inflammatory response is there for a specific reason. You know, it's unless it becomes aberrant. You know, it's there as as an, to support the adaptive response in tissue remodeling. So the first thing I ask is why would we want to dampen that response? If it's unless we're in some kind of like tournament situation where we need to recover rapidly for the and you know adaptation is kind of inconsequential and performance is essential. That might be the case. I don't think omega-3 fatty acids in that setting would be too useful. That's just my own particular take. We want to support the adaptive response. So just from my perspective, I'm, I'm not really convinced yet with, with the evidence. I'm just Kevin Cabello on this as well. When interpreting the data and the studies, one thing I always tend to look at is the control. And one of the major issues that we see in the cardiovascular literature is the use of an appropriate control you're really between a rock and a hard place with this because if you use any type of fatty acid, it's going to alter the lipid profile in, in another direction. If you don't use a fatty acid, then you're going to struggle to be able to come to the conclusion that it was because of the fatty acids. So that's something to, to really think about when you're reading these papers is, one, is it supplemented and is it affecting the target tissue? And two, is it an appropriate control? And I know, Kev, you're going to probably add to this, but that reminds me very much of the overriding message that Graham Close, Professor Graham Close gave us on a, he gave a presentation about this. And, you know, there was this issue of the role and importance of omega-3s 
as provided from a food first approach. But once you start whacking in those massive doses, it then becomes super physiological, I think, you know, would be the way to describe this, where it's not doing the same thing at all. In the same way that people like to get obsessed with squats, for example, might increase testosterone production and somehow equate that to the same thing that super physiological doses of uh, steroid injections that are going to hang around forever. And, you know, it's a very different approach, isn't it? Is that, a, is that where the problem has been? It's been this huge translational problem. Kev, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like so many other things that so many other compounds, it's somebody decides there's some mechanism and there's some bits of evidence here or there, and then everybody jumps on it. Because, it, Chris, if you recall, when we were doing your first study, the rugby, all the rugby teams in the country were whacking in big doses of, of fish oil. And I kept saying, why? You know, we, we don't know anything. And then when Chris did his protein synthesis study, it was clear that at least for the, if it's, we're talking about anabolism, it's, it's no good. Yeah. I mean, and it, this happens all the time with compounds. Everybody gets excited about it. Then we start doing studies and evidence is here, or there, and maybe not as strong as we thought in different aspects. And so, you know, people realize, I mean, it's, remember the high dose antioxidant story from about 15 years ago, every endurance athlete had to be on high dose antioxidants. And then of course, papers start coming out starting in Liverpool about how that might be counterproductive for, for adaptation. So, and I think, I think something similar has gone on with, with fish one. And we're just now starting to get to the point where we're starting to understand a little bit better when it might be useful. So as we say in, in Chris's recent study with the females, you know, my fear is that one might be overinterpreted, right? And Chris nicely laid out these limitations in the paper. But first of all, it was four weeks ahead of time that you started the supplementation, right? So four weeks before the immobilization. Well, that that then eliminates it from an athlete getting injured and then starting it, right? Now, you could say athletes should prophylactically be on it. But just in case they get injured, <laughs> then as Chris nicely said a minute ago, it could actually be counterproductive if they are injured because you, you're going to whack down that inflammatory response, which is, unless it gets run away, it's beneficial. It's part of the deal. It's part of the healing process. So I think we have to be careful. And so, you know, what I wouldn't want people to do right now is to say, if you're a female athlete, and you get injured, you should go on high dose official until we know more about it because mm. you know this is where a lot of people like to say well what harm is it going to do let's try it it could be there, there there's a rationale for how it could be harmful so we need to do it now if you if you have a situation where this could apply would be if you know you're going to have surgery on a certain date and you can plan ahead then maybe that's where this applies and remember that as we said before in chris's study it's the same principle as in the the Korean study on the rats, if you look at the recovery in Chris's study of the muscle mass, the recovery is actually roughly the same, or this is after they get the women's, correct me if I'm wrong here, Chris, but the women stopped the immobilization, so they started to recover. And the recovery is actually, if anything, slightly greater in the control group than the fish oil. So it's, again, it goes back to this you can sort of get a theme together of when you're in an anabolic situation, that fish oil doesn't seem to be quite as effective. That would be the way I would, if I had to put it all together, that, that's what, what I would say. Is that, Chris, does that sound like representation of what you saw? I'd say it's, it's about fair, Kevin. I think the thing is, is one, one thing is if you go into, say, that immobilization period, say surgery, for example, 
and you lose less, it takes you less time to recover it. So that that could be the situation that we're looking at um, there. But you know, like like with anything, there's so many limitations of the work. And the last thing I would want is is those papers to get taken and to run away with, with direct directly to applied practice. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. And I know there's some good people doing that work. So it's it's gonna be interesting to see what comes out. But I, I'm with Kevin on that. Like I I, this is kind of like, I feel very lucky. I'm like, I get paid to do my hobby and I'm really interested in finding things out and, and I'm not going to jump to conclusions and recommendations. I think there's just so much, there's so much nuance to a lot of these papers and it's it, because it takes so many, it takes a lot of money, a lot of effort and a lot of, and a lot of time to do this type of work. You know, it's really tempting to say, yes, let's do it, you know, but it, you know, I think that would just be a slightly irresponsible. It's, it's going to take a fair few more years, I think, before we can, we can round this out and it's good to know that other people are doing, doing the work and we can work together, to try and address these questions. But yeah, there's just so much nuance in this and it's an early field. So another study, which is often used to support, well, they've done, they've done, they've used this model several times, but with EAAs, I think, and then recently with omega-3 fatty acids was Bostock, that study where they've got a, it's an immobilization study. And if you don't look into it, then people are going to say, Oh, Hey, this mobilization and it seems like it's working. Well, first of all, statistically, it wasn't quite there, but you know they talk big talk about trends. But if you look at that model, it, I can never figure out what they're doing with that model because it's an it's an arm model, so they immobilize the arm, but it's only for like nine hours a day or something, right? And what is that? What is that? What? How does that? So first of all, they're limiting their their loss, so they're they're limiting their ability to detect any changes, and then what's the applicability of that? Just, um, I just don't, I don't understand why they do it, but with all those limitations and weaknesses, people still using that to, to justify omega-3 fatty acids. And I think we got to be careful with that. Yep. And it's, it's also important to acknowledge, you know, not all the data are very positive on, on this, on this issue. So a recent paper in JAMA got published where I think they supplemented with omega-3s and then omega-3s plus exercise and all the people, I think it was Bischoff, that paper by Bischoff, and they didn't see an effect. Keelan Murphy in UCD has got an excellent study coming out soon. Again, I believe it's null data. A lot of it, I think, is related to, and kind of tying in what Kevin just said there about injury and people who are healthy. Is in, in many studies, people who are already very healthy tend to not get the benefit that we would expect. It'd be interesting to see things like from the, like the perspective of physical functioning and whether people are not as 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 healthy as they as compared to a control who are healthy, and, and whether the, the delta change is going to be bigger in people who aren't as as uh, as as physical basically on as as healthy and then with the immobilization i think we're disturbing it a little bit there to kind of mimic what would happen see during a surgery but the difference again going back to what kevin's saying about the surgery is in a disuse model that it's only recapitulating what we would see in surgery you don't have you know the excessive levels of inflammation it doesn't actually it's an experimental model of immobilization and if you were to say bust your knee up you're going to have a lot more going on than simply a cast. And so that there's contraindications there that we really need to consider. So I think looking at the data and the literature as a whole and, and picking out the nuances is pretty important. You mentioned uh, looking at the literature, literature data whole, as I referred to earlier, the body of knowledge on this is, uh, is pretty massive, really. Kev, why should we, or why would you want to slap someone in the face with a wet kipper, so to speak, to use a good, or omega-3 rich wet, ki- wet kipper whilst we're at it, to use a good British phrase, to waken up the critical thinking parts of their brain because 
there are plenty all over. You'll see YouTube videos about people saying with perfect, what appear to be credible qualifications or whatever, fighting the cause for omega-3 supplements. They're referencing, you know, these various studies that have, you know, that have been done. Why should they be listening to us geeks, for example, and maybe and maybe thinking, well, you know, we're being more cautious about this. We're, we're, we're suggesting people should stop and think. You know, how do we help them think and differentiate the sort of the quality from the flawed evidence that exists out there that, for example, sort of justifies your perspective on, on why you've been saying what you've been saying today? As we've talked about on this pod several times, it, it's not easy. It's difficult. And, and it, a lot of people haven't done all the studies on fish oil that Chris has done and read all the papers. And, and it, it does take some training. And I would encourage practitioners to try to think about that, to try to not just accept the conclusions that the authors put down, to look into the, the paper. Why is this paper different from that paper? What, why, are, why are the results different? Why are the conclusions different? And, you know, you can go in and say, well, look, this one, they gave 10 grams and this one, they gave five grams. Maybe it was the dose that was different. And look for consistencies. If you if you just see a one-off result, then be skeptical because, you know, a one-off could be explained by sort of different factors. And one of the reasons you, you do statistics is you try to rule out whether it was randomly, the, the data were randomly done. And in our types of studies in human nutrition and exercise studies, the participant numbers tend to be on the low side when we do these things, because as Chris said so rightly before, they're expensive and very difficult to do. And don't trust just one study and look for consistency in the results and look for differences like we were discussing earlier about, okay, why did Chris's study with the weightlifters in a protein, why is that different from the Gordon Smith study? Well, there was an exercise and then it was a square wave infusion versus, you know, a bolus ingestion. So look for those kind of things. And, you know, I said this on the last pod, but what I try to get students to do is to say, are the conclusions that the authors put down, are they supported by the results given the limitations of the methods and the design of the study and within the context of the literature? That's a question that I would encourage everyone to look at when they look at a paper. Then Another thing to look for if you're a practitioner is look for review papers like Chris wrote. Now, some review papers are going to be more technical than others, but like Chris wrote a really nice, I don't know if you'd call it a review or what the Nutrition X one that just came out. I'll you know, link on to Graham's, it notes. Yeah. On Graham Close's site. Mm. So that one's really well written for, for that audience. And, and as scientists, we need to probably write more of those kind of things, more, more sort of blogs and more sort of aimed at not just those of us sitting up putting the ivory tower or harumph at each other. It's partially on us to help provide that information. And then practitioners, et cetera, need to kind of try to evaluate who are trusted sources. And usually trusted sources are the ones who say, we don't really know, but we think it's this because of that. And the people who are so solid about everything, those are the people that I'm automatically skeptical about. Hmm. Chris, so give us some exemplars then, you know, you've written some really high level reviews on this. What are some of the classic things that turn you off straight away and you go, right, bin, bin, delete, that's not going to get included. You know, I think this would be useful for the listeners, literally in the context of this particular topic that we're into on omega-3 
fatty acids. You know, what what have what have been some of the areas that you've seen that you just instantly? I'm not going to include that because that's obviously not something I want to influence the the knowledge that I'm going to get out of this. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of an interesting question, that, and um, I think Stu Phillips would say something. I kind of stuck with me about finding the signal and signal in the noise. And the problem with nutrition research, I find, is that there's so much noise. And, you know, I, I kind of, when I'm, I wrote, and I'll admit, you know, I probably wrote a few too many review papers at this stage in my career, but when, I, when I'm reading them, I'm looking through them and I, I'm critically analyzing these papers and I'm like, I'm not putting that in, I'm not putting that in. And then it comes to the review and the reviewers are like, what about this, this, and this? And you want to be kind, you know, I'm very, you know, respectful of how difficult these studies can be. And my own work has many limitations, you know, but I mean, if you want to formulate a coherent message to me, I'm kind of selective and, and I, I just look at the groups that's, that seem to acknowledge the nuance and the limitations of the work and, and they can put that in context. And then, you know, there's, there's, they're not overselling the data. So when I kind of read papers, I find that Luke Van Loon does a really good job when I read his work of being very balanced. And I know that if you read some of the Tina Mittendorfer stuff as well, I find that very, very balanced. Gordon Smith wrote a good review. And again, I think, who was it? Stu Gray and Ollie wrote a couple of reviews as well. And I just find that when you provide context and nuance, that to me gives the work and the author's credibility. So then, you know, I, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I uh, buy into that. And what I think it's a case, it, and it depends at different stages in your career. So when I was a PhD student, I just thought that I didn't know what I was doing and everything I was doing was wrong. And, you know, the variability in the data is because I'm not really that good. And then, you know, towards the end of your PhD, you start to get a bit more experience and you work with the data. And, and I think the key thing for me is, that, and I was grateful for the opportunity at Sterling, is I got the experience of the hands-on experimental work, but I also was in a lab with Lee Hamilton, who was like brilliant in a lab, spent countless hours with me teaching me molecular techniques. And I got to see what what the y-axis really, really should look like. And I can you can spot a sketchy y-axis a mile off. And so for me as a PhD student, I got some more of an appreciation. And then I think you hit your your most jaded level as a postdoc, where unless you did it yourself personally and you prepared every single sample, you don't believe anything. And then I've, I've kind of left that phase now. And I'd like to think I'm a little bit less jaded and a little bit more, more open and, and, and balanced. But for me, it's just really looking at the groups that provide context and nuance in their discussion. I couldn't agree more. That's, you look in the review papers that people write, you look in the discussions of papers that they write, you should see here are these findings. Here are different findings. Here's an argument for why this is what we accept and not that. A well laid out argument. And that's that's just part of critical thinking. You know, you don't just accept it. You look for this, this argument and an argument that makes sense. You know, you don't say that can't be an elephant or you do say that can't be an elephant because it's only, you know, two inches long. You, you got to have a good argument there and one that makes sense, not just not just two sort of non sequiturs, two facts that don't fit together at all. And you'll see this sometimes. And what if you see a one sided argument, a one sided discussion or a one sided discussion in a review, that's when you need to be suspicious. You should be able to bring in the other side or data that don't agree and explain why you think your conclusion is is how to take that. That's brilliant, guys. Look, I, I think I should draw this to a bit of a conclusion here. And I think Chris, if I can ask you just to give us a super quick summary of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids and sort of the practical implications that you would tell someone if you only had a a minute or so uh, where you've been bumped into at a conference or something or on the street. What do you want the listeners to, to take from this conversation? 
Well, like with anything, you know, it, it depends on the context of the question. But if I was to go and someone, say if someone was a practitioner working with athletes, I would just say there's just not the evidence there to, to increase above what, what the RDA is or the recommended amount of 250 to 500 EPA plus DHA combined. We're getting closer to, 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 to seeing if there is an ergogenic effect. We're, we're moving closer and closer each year, but we're just not there yet. Is there an argument, if, if there's a context which could be restrictive eating, somebody with extreme dietary choices is there any is there any direction there that you feel would help justify the need for, for supplementation is there any argument for that you think if people don't like fish if they're not getting epa and dha from the diet there is a case there in my mind for supplementation in that context yeah yeah it's just okay. it's just that there's no benefit to cutting out the fish on purpose is there obviously so i think that that's uh yeah that's a good point there. you know there's starting to be a a body of work to suggest that you know, like in Chris's study, it was females. In older adults, the more successful studies with muscle, involving muscle, have been in older females. More, In fact, Stu Gray had, has a study with compared them directly, males and females, and saw a better response in the females than the males. So there, it looks like, as Chris suggested earlier, that maybe something's going on. There might be a sex difference here, and we still need to do that. And then you combine the sex difference with the age effect and maybe that's a population that might benefit yeah building off that i mean like the majority of my work for the next few years is going to be in um in females got an operating grant for that but i think the concern that i have is that when and i've worked with a, a biostat session here when you're preparing grants and you're you're powering your study statistically to include the sex-based differences all of a sudden the subject numbers go through the roof and the cost per subject when you're using the tracer technology is, is pretty large so it just doesn't become practical and reviewers can see that. So I think my concern sometimes is I'm an absolute advocate for sex-based difference research 100%. But when we're doing this type of work, you know, unless we're going to get the money to do it, it's really difficult to design these studies so that they're statistically powered to detect the effect of sex. Brilliant. Guys, look, I think we could keep going. And this has exploded my mind in many directions. And I know it will, the listeners, and as I always refer the listeners please 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 don't just listen to our discussion you really must read the the reviews that we've been talking to which i will link to in the show notes including the sort of more basic version that kev just talked about will also be added to there so that you can sort of sink your teeth into this topic as well as the other podcasts that are previous guest experts some of which have included kev of course I'll link to all of those so that you can feast on this uh, topic. Now, Chris, I know people can't follow you on social media because you're a complete social media hermit, but they can track your your work on things like Google Scholar and ResearchGate, right? And of course, you're, you've got a website for the university, I guess, if people want to come and do their PhD or something with you. Is that right? Yeah, I have ResearchGate. I don't really check it that often, to be honest. I, I'm accessible via email. Yeah, Twitter isn't for me, to be honest, but uh, I can definitely be access via email and my queen's email that is not my master anymore so. super duper yeah well i'll anyway I'll, I'll link to what's relevant in the uh, in the show notes on our podcast at our website at www.theiopn and kev of course you're a social media giant now an influencer of sorts <laughs> uh, if there's one thing i'm not aspiring to is to be a social media influencer that's for sure <laughs> 
We're getting, we'll, we'll get you on TikTok. That's what we've got to do. <laughs> get some special videos. Keb's well worth following on, on Twitter, which is at Prof Tipper. I'll link to that when I post the tweet and the Instagram. And you can find more about Kev on the about our team link on the IOPN's website, as well as the rest of our amazing team there. So that brings us to an end. I'd like to thank you, gents. It's been awesome having this conversation with you today. I, of course, am Ron Brown. I can look forward to bringing another episode back to you guys very soon. Take care, everyone, and stay safe.